Welcome, everyone, to episode 30 of Ohio Unsolved. I'm your host, Matthew, and today things are going to be a little different. Today I begin including stories from all over the United States, but don't worry, I'll still be including Ohio stories in every episode, whether it's an unsolved murder, a haunting, or a creepy cryptid. With doing this, I hope to make each episode longer and more detailed-oriented with the stories. So with all that out of the way, let's just jump right into the episode. Everyone sit back, make sure to lock your doors and windows, and get ready for Ohio Unsolved. Our first story today comes from Austin, Texas. On December 6, 1991, four teenage girls were murdered inside of a yogurt shop. The victims were 13-year-old Amy Ayers, 17-year-old Eliza Thomas, 17-year-old Jennifer Harbison, and Jennifer's 15-year-old sister, Sarah. Jennifer and Eliza were employees of the shop while Sarah and her friend Amy were in the shop to get a ride home with Jennifer after it closed at 11 p.m. Approximately one hour before closing time, a man who had tried to hustle customers while in line was permitted to use the bathroom in the back, and he took a very long time and may have jammed a rear door open. A couple who left the shop just before 11 p.m when Jennifer locked the front door to prevent more customers entering, reported seeing two men at a table acting suspiciously. Around midnight, a police officer patrolling the area reported a fire inside the shop, and first responders discovered the bodies of the girls inside. The victims had been shot in the head, while some of them had been raped. A 22 caliber pistol was used to commit the murders and the perpetrators probably exited out through a back door that was found unlocked. The organized method of operation, ability to control the victims, and destruction of evidence by arson pointed to an adult experienced in crime rather than teenagers. According to one of the original detectives on the case, Austin Police Department had DNA from an unknown male as a result of one of the rapes. A Y-chromosome match for the perpetrator DNA had been found in a research database of the FBI, but it had declined to reveal the identity of the man in accordance with the law of anonymity for donors, 
and because thousands of men could bear this fragment of DNA, which is unable to identify individuals. Shortly before midnight, on Friday, December 6, 1991, a patrolman from the Austin Police Department noticed a fire coming from an I-can't-believe-it's-yogurt shop and reported it to his dispatcher. After the fire was extinguished, firefighters discovered four nude bodies. Each had been shot in the head execution style with a 22 caliber lead bullet. Sarah's hands had been bound behind her with a pair of panties and she had also been gagged and raped. Jennifer was not bound, but her hands were behind her back. Eliza had been gagged and her hands were also tied behind her back. All three had been severely charred and shot in the back of the head. Unlike the others, Amy's body was found in a separate part of the shop. She was not charred, but she had received a second and very early third degree burns on 25 to 30 percent of her body. She was found with a sock-like cloth around her neck. She had also been shot the same as the others. However, the bullet had missed her brain. She also had a second bullet, which had caused severe damage to her brain, exiting through her cheek and jawbone. It is thought that the killers had stacked all four bodies, one on top of the other, but that Amy had pulled herself off and managed to crawl to a different part of the store. Sarah's and Eliza's bodies were found stacked on top of each other with Jennifer's body, which is theorized to have been stacked on top of the others, but had been disturbed when Amy crawled away. The autopsy results show high levels of BTU output, which suggests an accelerant may have been used. Initial investigations had produced a large number of persons of interest, among them a 15-year-old caught with a 22 caliber in a nearby mall days after the killings. Although he initially gave promising information after tough questioning, the detectives decided that he was trying to get himself out of the gun charge and eliminated him and three petty criminal friends whom he had implicated, none of whom were older than 17 years old at the time. Several years later, a new detective on the case would theorize that the four teens from 1991 were credible suspects. By that time, they were in their 20s. In a string of interrogations conducted by various detectives, confessions were obtained from some of the suspects. They said all four, Robert Springsteen, Michael Scott, Maurice Pierce, and Forrest Wellborn, had participated in the murder. No record was kept of what was said to the men in 1991 interrogations, making it impossible to know whether the detectives had supplied information to the suspects in the initial interrogations. Such information could be used to implicate the suspects in later interrogations, if they were to reference it. Two of the four young men were sent to trial, entirely due to their self-incriminating statements. The prosecution went into great detail about the horrific nature of the crimes against the young women, but presented no hard evidence other than the confessions. The two were convicted, one being sentenced to death and the other sentenced to life imprisonment because he had been 15 at the time. However, the prosecution's tactic 
of using excerpts from each one's alleged confessions at the other's trial was ruled to have violated a confrontation clause because the co-defendant was non-testifying. Both convictions were overturned on the confrontation clause alone, and the men were freed in 2009. The prosecution insisted that they would be retried. However, forensic investigation showed that the DNA found in a victim was not theirs, nor was it that of the other two implicated in their confessions. The prosecution consequently abandoned plans for a retrial. Texas courts later decided that those released were not entitled to compensation because they had not proven that they did not commit the crime. On Wednesday, June 24, 2009, Judge Mike Lynch ruled in response to Travis County District Attorney's request that one of the trials be continued, that defendants Springsteen and Scott be freed on bond pending their upcoming trials. At 2.50 p.m. that day, they both walked out of the Travis County Jail with their attorneys. Later that day, Lindbergh responded to Lynch's decision with the following statement. Today, I requested a continuance in the case against Michael Scott, a defendant in the yogurt shop murders, whose trial was scheduled to begin on July 6th. Judge Mike Lynch granted that motion, but also released both Michael Scott and Robert Springsteen on personal bond, as he indicated he would do in his previous scheduling order. Requesting a delay in the case was a difficult decision, but one that I believe is best course toward an ultimate successful prosecution of this important matter. Knowing that Judge Lynch would release both defendants, we requested certain conditions on their bonds requiring them to remain in Travis County and report to the court any change of residence to have no contact with the victim's families or witnesses, that they did not carry weapons or consume alcohol or illegal drugs, and that they report to the court on a routine basis and attend all court appearances. As you know, both Springsteen and Scott were convicted by juries in June of 2001 and September of 2002. Their convictions were then overturned by the appellate court, but their statements to law enforcement were found to be voluntarily given. Since the original trial of these two men, new developments in DNA technology have become available. As we prepared for retrial in March 2008, we submitted various evidentiary items for what is called YSTR testing. This test looks for male DNA only and is deemed to be the most accurate test for samples that are mixtures of female and male DNA as in this case. We sought this testing because we have an ongoing duty and responsibility to use the most up-to-date science available to seek the truth in this and all the cases that we prosecute. Currently, it is clear to me that our evidence in the death of these four young women includes DNA from one male whose identity is not yet known to us. The defense asserts that the testing reveals more than one unknown male, but the evidence presented at the hearing on Thursday, June 18th contradicts that notion. The reliable scientific evidence in the case presents one and one only unknown male donor. 
Given that, I cannot, in good conscience, allow this case to go to trial before the identity of this male donor is determined, and the full truth is known. I remain confident that both Springsteen and Scott are responsible for the deaths at the yogurt shop, but it would not be prudent to risk a trial until we know the nature of the involvement of this unknown male. My office and the Austin Police Department remain committed to these cases. Their further investigation will continue to be a priority. My commitment to the victims, their families, and this community is that we will not give up until all of the people responsible for these terrible and tragic murders are brought to justice. On October 28, 2009, all charges were dismissed against Scott and Springsteen. Words cannot describe the actions taken by these unknown people involved in this horrific tragedy. Even in 1991, it's hard to believe that someone could, could get away with murdering four innocent teenage girls inside of a yogurt shop. I just hope that one day the people responsible are found and they spend the rest of their life in jail. Our next story is from Ohio and it's from yourghoststories.com and it's one girl's experience with ghost hunting. I will be reading from the author's perspective. 2011 was a tough year for me. My boyfriend of five years had suddenly dumped me at a New Year's Eve party. My grandmother grew very ill and died. And soon after, I was back in a relationship after my breakup with an ex. It wasn't easy, but I found a job close to my boyfriend at the time and opted to move in with him. We had been broken up in high school but we remained friends and decided to try to restart our relationship after he strained up his life. So we moved into a nice two-bedroom apartment off Wilmington Pike in Dayton. We didn't have much, but we made do with the little bits of furniture his mother had given to him. My friend Joey was a wild card. Although he was very sweet and smart, he often didn't use common sense and never really thought everything through. This is what landed him in trouble after high school with his rowdy, drunken behavior. After breaking an ex's car window at a bar and yelling in public enough to disturb the whole damn city, he opted to get better and start to settle down. Settle down to him meant just drinking at home and putting his effort during his off time to a hobby we both enjoyed and bonded over, the paranormal. Joey was a part of a local ghost hunting team. While I dabbled on and off between my two jobs, Joey put forth the most effort in the group. They would drive to places around the city to investigate, and even had a few people call to look into their own hauntings. We had two rules when it came to investigating. Don't bring anything home, and don't bring a Ouija board into the house. Obviously, I wouldn't be writing this and sharing my story if he had actually listened to me. Around August, Joey went on a ghost hunt at a former camp near the city. I stayed home to catch up on the housework, so I packed him up, kissed his cheek, and told him that I would see him the next morning. About three to four hours after he left, he returned. 
I was really surprised, seeing as I was expecting them to stay the night at the location. I noticed when he walked in that he was hiding a plastic bag behind the sofa and looked pretty run down. I asked him what was wrong and what was in the bag, but he just said that he needed a shower and walked away. I peeked in the bag and to my upset, a Ouija board. I didn't want to argue, so I just went to the bedroom. Joey came out a few minutes later and joined me in the bedroom, and I asked him why the board was in the house and why, when I looked in, it was busted up. He then told me that during a search of one of the old cabins, one of the guys brought out the board. All four of them in the group sat around and started to ask some questions. Growing annoyed with getting nothing after 20 minutes, one of the guys busted it up and gave it to Joey to get rid of. Obviously, Joey forgot to actually throw it away and thought it being inside the house until morning was no big deal. I shrugged it off and asked him to please get rid of it by morning. It still didn't explain why he looked so distressed, but I chalked it up to maybe knocking back a few beers and upset over not finding anything at the campsite. By morning, Joey had gotten rid of the board. Two weeks later, Joey went off with his mother to visit his grandma for the weekend. I had come down with a major stomach bug and chest cold, so I again stayed home to rest up. I had the whole weekend planned. Sleep, sip some Sprite, sleep, eat a bowl of broth, and repeat. Well, my weekend wasn't all that easy. Not long after Joey left, I heard knocking at our patio door. Thinking it was the neighbor kid asking to borrow our hose or to sell us his school's fundraiser candy, I got up and looked out the door. Nothing. I walked back and I heard it again. So I again checked. Nothing. I had the feeling that the kids in the complex were playing a version of Ding Dong Ditch, so I stayed beside the door, behind the blinds. I heard it again, and I flung open the door to scare them, but nobody was there. No sooner after I shut the door and locked it, I heard a massive bang in our bedroom. Grabbing a baseball bat, I walked back to the room to again find nothing. I checked the windows, under the bed, and in the closet. Nothing at all. Not wanting to spook myself out or bother Joey, I just assumed that it was our upkeep department and opted to go to bed cursing out loud how rude it is to do repairs so damn loud. About two hours after I went to bed, something woke me up. Joey and I share a large waterbed. Although the movement was very soothing and never bugged me, this movement was damn near making me sicker than I was. It was like someone was wanting to wake me up and get my attention. Annoyed and confused, I sat up and sighed. Looking at where the bed was being pushed, I noticed a little girl at the end. I rubbed my eyes, and when I reopened, I saw the back of her running out. I got up and I raced out to find nothing. I kept myself in the bedroom all weekend, with the door locked until Joey came home. It was after I told Joey about the girl that he opted to tell me why they left early. According to Joey, after they broke the board, 
he got a really bad feeling deep down. He said that he tried to shrug it off, but felt very uneasy once he and another member went a bit further into the woods to look at the other sites on the grounds. He said that when they reached what appeared to be a schoolhouse, he suddenly felt very sick and passed out. While lying on the ground and his partner ran to get the first aid kit, the rest of the group, fearing that he had busted his head on a log or the cement blocks that were scattered around the area, Joey said that he heard someone walk right beside him and kick his ribs. Joey said, when I opened my eyes, there was this really big black mass. It wasn't really human. It was just this very dark, heavy mass. It scared me, but I couldn't yell out. I felt like I was being choked. He then said that he passed out again, only to be woken up by one of the guys asking him a series of questions. I asked him, how the hell does that explain a little girl ghost? Guess I used the quote marks while talking to him. He asked me if I remember what I learned about demons and other harmful ghosts. Knowing that a spirit can apparently manifest into something seeming very non-threatening, I asked him if he really thought something came home with him. I guess, is all he told me. I explained that I didn't really believe him about something coming home with him, but to be honest, I was really worried about if something was attached to the board and then attached to him. Fast forward another few months. After a few bumps in the night, doors being open after closing them, and waking up to our stove on high for all four burners a handful of times, Joey and I were on the outs. He had been drinking more and had been hanging out with a young lady who he admitted he had slept with and was now proclaiming she was pregnant. Obviously, this was heartbreaking and caused a massive fight one night. I was standing in the kitchen yelling at him about the young woman and about how stupid he was. To be honest, the girl is the trashiest thing this side of the Ohio River and has a terrible rep for getting knocked up over and over again without a clear remembrance of who she slept with around the time of her pregnancy. But I digress. Joey was a good 50 feet away from me in the hallway arguing with me. I took a step into the hall with one foot still in the kitchen. I was 15 to 20 feet away from our oven while we were yelling over each other. He stepped closer and got in my face as we just kept arguing. The oven door slammed open then shut as we stood there. It slammed down one more time as we both stood there just looking at it. We didn't move for a good two minutes as we just shut up and tried to process what we had just seen. Joey then walked over, put up the oven door, and locked it. We didn't look at each other the whole night, but soon apologized for the yelling, and he apologized for his terrible choice. We opted to take a break, but still live together until we figure out what we do about this baby drama. Three days later, I was cleaning the bathroom. Joey was due to be home after his work shift, so I opted to clean up and freshen our bathroom. Hearing the door open, I thought, why not scare the bastard? I hid behind the door, which had a lovely crack to see out to the main room 
where I knew he would be walking past to go to the kitchen to grab his nightly six-pack before walking down the hall where I would strike. I waited for him to walk past, but he never did. Thinking that he was trying to scare me, I snuck out and I jumped to the main room, hoping to scare him for scaring me. Nothing. I was very scared at that point, and I grabbed my cell phone and something heavy. I looked around until I reached the kitchen, knowing nobody passed me as I just stood there confused. That was until the locked oven door slammed down and a huge gust of foul wind flew past me. I ran out of the apartment and down the end of the road where I called Joey to get home quick. After he arrived and consoled my scared ass, I told him that I was leaving right then and there. I have never packed so damn quick in my life. I never went back to the apartment after that night. It's been a few years now. Joey is the proud father of my godson, and I am due to be married this year to a man that I met at work while I live with Joey. Joey ended up moving out of the apartment a few weeks after me. We have never gone back and actually ended up leaving stuff there. The only scary things that have happened after the move was us having very vivid nightmares and my godson asking me why I didn't want to play with the pretty girl at the apartment. We've never told Greg about the apartment, so we have no idea how he knows about the girl. That was definitely a scary one. I always say that I would love to do a ghost hunt myself. But if I'm being 100% honest, I don't know if I could actually go. There's a tiny part of me that doesn't want to find out. But I'm sure one day that I'll eventually go on one. Now our final story is another listener story from Melinda. Thank you Melinda for sending this in. So my friend Kendra and I were 17 years old. Every night we would roll a blunt and drive down Charleston Pike and loop all the way back to her house. While we were cruising and smoking, listening to music, you know, the norm. Well, up ahead, we saw something on all fours, eating something in the middle of the road. From a distance away, at first we thought that it was a big wolf. We got up on it, and I slammed on the brakes, probably 20 feet away from it. It was on all fours. This thing was the height of our car. It raised up on its hind legs and turned at the waist to look at us. It was huge. The hair that covered its body was long, thinned, and patchy, like it had mange. We had to duck and look up through the windshield to see its face. It had huge teeth and fangs, and they were bloody and had meat hanging from the front from whatever it was eating, maybe a deer. I backed up, turned around, and flew back to her house. We ran inside her house, and we started screaming. We just saw a werewolf. I don't know why we thought it was a werewolf. It did have an elongated snout, but not that long, with a gorilla-slash-human face. It was so hard to describe. I wish that there were cell phones with cameras back then. This was in the 90s. 
her dad was like, what have you guys been smoking? Uh, we smoked a blunt, but that's not going to make us see anything. And definitely not the exact same thing. Well, we got made fun of, and we never spoke of it to anyone. Fast forward to 2020. My husband's grandma came over, and she started talking about the beast her and Brandon, my husband at the time, saw. Driving home one night on Charleston Pike, the same road my friend and I were on when we saw this thing. She said that a wolf dog type creature came out of nowhere and started running alongside of their car. On all fours, this thing was the height of their car and was keeping up with them going 55 miles per hour. It darted out in front of their car and across the street. Now my friend and I were 17. I asked his grandma how old Brandon, my husband, was at the time. She said six. When I was 17, he was six. Sounds gross, but I didn't meet him until he was 22. That sounds like a really scary encounter. Seeing a wolf almost the size of your car would definitely scare me from driving down that road at night for a long time. Thank you so much, Melinda, for sharing your story. And please, don't hesitate to share any others that you might have. I would love to read them. Well, that's going to do it for today. I hope everyone enjoyed the first story outside of Ohio, and I've already picked out a really good one for next week. Please rate and review on Spotify and Apple Podcasts. A five-star rating really helps others find this podcast. Also, make sure to share with your friends and family that enjoy this kind of content. Also, the first Ohio and Soft t-shirt is almost sold out, so make sure to grab one while you can. This design may not be reprinted. Once again, thank you everyone for listening, and make sure to keep your doors and windows locked, and stay ready for Ohio Unsolved. <laughs>